phrase God forbid crops up many times in older translations, but it is far from a literal translation of the Greek that underlies it. Nonetheless, this phrase, God forbid, traces all the way back to William Tyndale and even to John Wycliffe before him. Uh, May it never be would be a stricter rendering of the Greek, but God forbid has endured as a statement of indignant resolve. It occurs 26 times in the Bible. The majority of the uses are from the Apostle Paul. It was a common rhetorical device of Paul's to voice a possible objection to his teaching and then to reject it firmly. Uh, So uh, Romans 7 verse 7, is the law sin? God forbid. Or uh, Romans 9 verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Or Romans 11 verse 1, has God rejected his people? God forbid. Or Galatians 2 verse 17, is Christ therefore a servant of sin? God forbid. Uh, Today we will think of perhaps the most famous instance of God forbid. It's Romans chapter 6 from verse 1, and it takes this same form. He raises a question and then answers it emphatically. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? God forbid, or by no means in modern translations. As Paul is preaching the gospel to the Romans, he expects an objection to his teaching. It's an objection for which every gospel preacher must be prepared. If a preacher is not faced by this objection, we may question whether they are really preaching Paul's gospel. Uh, The objection is this, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If we preach Paul's gospel, people will ask us this question. Because it might sound to the people we're preaching to as though God's free gift of salvation is magnified if we commit more and more sins. You know, if Jesus picks up the tab for our bad behavior, and if his payment on the cross is his glory, then we can make Christ look more glorious, can't we? We can rack up an even bigger debt for him to cover, right? In this way, mightn't we just continue in sin so that his grace may increase? Paul's answer to this is emphatic. God forbid. He rules such thinking out of court. But notice why such thinking is rejected from verse 2. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So often we think of salvation individualistically and impersonally. We think that God gives each of us a thing called grace or salvation or forgiveness. It's it's like a blank check handed from heaven, underwritten by Christ's blood. And so we, we take this thing called forgiveness and we run off to spend God's grace on all our sinful pleasures, do we? God forbid! Because God does not give us an impersonal thing, He gives us Christ. A person with whom we've been united, we've been baptized into him, planted together with him, crucified with him, buried with him, and raised again to newness of life with him. 
We are not individuals with a get out of hell free card. We are members of Christ himself, in whom our sin and its consequences have been dealt with once and for all. We've been brought through sin and death and judgment and out into new life. We've not been saved to sin. We've been saved from sin, freed to live a new life. And not as individuals. We are in Christ, united to him like a a bride to a bridegroom, like a body to a head. And our heavenly husband, he loves us to death. In that context, sin is just unthinkable. Unbreakable love makes for unthinkable sin. It's not that more love makes sin more attractive. The very opposite. The more I know this irreversible, unquenchable, unconditional, uniting love, the more hatred I have for this body of sin. Paul gives an example of this in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, he addresses the problem of Christians visiting the brothel. You heard, yeah, Christians visiting the brothel. I wonder how you would tell people. Or how, would you, how would you handle that instance of ungodliness? I think, I think we'd be tempted to say, well, look, you have Jesus now, but if you visit the brothel, he will leave you at the door. When you sin, you're on your own, buddy. That's kind of how we think. It's not what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? God forbid. God forbid. Do you you hear Paul's argument? He's saying that we are so united to Jesus that no sin of ours breaks that union. Even if you visit the brothel, you do not somehow break off from your union with Jesus. Rather, you drag Jesus into that sin. And you say, well, how horrible. Well, exactly how horrible. So cut it out. Stop it. Stop dragging Jesus into sin. But notice that Paul never says, you are conditionally united to Jesus. And if you're good, he'll love you. No, no, no. You are unbreakably united to Jesus. Even as you commit the most heinous sin. That's what makes you cry out, God forbid, when you contemplate sin. We imagine that the way to make people good is to add conditions onto the love of God. You know, God loves you a lot, yeah, a a great deal. But if you sin, the love cools and you'll have to mope around on the outskirts of his presence for a while. Actually, conditional love does not keep us honest. Conditional love turns our hearts away from the lover and towards other things. Conditional love increases sin. It's unconditional love that captures the heart. Christ grips us with a love that says, no matter where you go or what you do, I am with you and I am for you. We have an unbreakable marriage bond. And Jesus says to us, I love you, come what may. More than this, Christ has taken us through sin and its consequences and out into freedom. However we might muck around in the pit, Christ has lifted us to the throne. And whatever promises which sin makes, they are lies. The desires we seek to satisfy are not met in sin. They are truly met in our loving bridegroom. And he will never leave us, nor forsake us. So then, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? God forbid. God forbid.